we actually have like an Instagram ready class when we're on for our expo in which we make sure that before that plate goes out, that it's Instagrammable, so to speak. So we definitely include that in training and part of the operations. It's great publicity, right? I mean, you know, everybody's on social media these days when they're posting it, tell them I'm a biscuit belly, look at this great mimosa I've got, look at this great biscuit I've got. It's a pre-advertising opportunity that has real legitimacy because it's coming straight from your customer. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have Chad Coulter, the founder of Biscuit Belly, and Chuck Shatner, an investor in Biscuit Belly, a mentor to Chad, and a founding member of Papa John's. In this episode, we discuss best practices for operating a modern day restaurant, why Biscuit Belly has taken a measured approach to franchise growth, with some wisdom sprinkled in from Chuck on the Papa John's rise to national franchise success. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I'm impressed with how Harry is helping franchise owners. Hire, manage, engage, and retain your people on one powerful platform that's used by over 50,000 locations today. Visit harry.com and tell them the wolf sent you. That's H-A-R-R-I dot com. It's kind of funny, Chad. Like <laughs> Early on in my franchise career, if you will, right? I was actually kind of in touch with you when Biscuit Belly started. So it's funny that we're linking up now. But before we even go into that, I mean, I guess for you and Chuck, how did you guys come into contact? And, and was it kind of at the beginning of just even forming the idea for Biscuit Belly? Yeah. So we met probably back in 2016 through a mutual friend. My wife and I started another concept called Lubino, which was a higher end, like 60 wines by the glass, Southern style tapas restaurant. And we started that in 2014. And we were at store three and we were looking for mentor and some capital to help grow that. And kind of through some mutual friends in the, in the entrepreneurial world in 2016, Chuck and I met and took me about eight or nine months to convince him to give us some money <laughs> and that this was a good thing to invest in. And uh, so that, that worked out well and grew Lubino to five total units in three different states. Uh, we ended up selling that uh, in 2020. So that was kind of the first foray. And then after that, I take it, you know, you were kind of onto the next project, which is Biscuit Belly. And so Chuck was that kind of sold on Chad and his wife and what they could do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a recovering lawyer and he's a recovering pharmacist as is his wife. So we both come in, you know, I've, I've been in the food business a long time and it's one of those things that gets in your blood. And uh, I spent a long time at Papa John's. My, my first W2 job was at a Wendy's in Clarksville, Indiana. And I'm on the board of some other companies and have a, a coffee company here in town. But Chad and I met, we hit it off very quickly. I really like the Lovino concept. Even though he's a pharmacist, uh, he's a natural restaurant guy. 
and he'd been fomenting this uh, this idea about biscuits for some years. Since 2014, yeah. And and once we started digging into it, the consensus was replicating a biscuit belly is much easier than replicating Luvino. Luvino was a very chef-driven menu. So we, we went to work on menu, on colors, on logo, trademark, all that. It's been about a year. Yeah, we started in yeah. 2018. We didn't uh, open the first Biscuit Belly until June of 2019. That was the reason for selling Lovino was to focus just on Biscuit Belly. You know, Chad was going to bed at midnight after we closed down a Lovino and then getting up at 6 a.m. to open up Biscuit Belly. He said, you can't do that six days a week. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Well, you guys did a fantastic job on the branding and everything. I mean, that was one of the first things I noticed when I was back in my franchise development days and I stumbled on Biscuit Belly. I was like, whoa, like these guys have thought about everything from not just a website, but even like I saw the pictures and I remember the straws even like have those yeah. colors that kind of link in. I was like, oh, like they're detail oriented and they've really thought about every step of where a customer might be. And even the paper that kind of comes in food, like trays sometimes. Yeah. So like everything, I was just like, wow, this looks like an awesome concept. So that's why I wanted to reach out. Chuck, I'd be curious for just your take, given that, you know, all your experience and being a part of Papa John's, of course, I mean, which... A pizza concept is obviously very different than Biscuit Belly, but how do you think about like what makes a successful food franchise? Because given that context, right, the Papa John's more, you go order pizza, take it home for the family maybe, versus a sit-down kind of brunch-style restaurant concept like Biscuit Belly. In the restaurant world, the number one thing is the food's got to be great. Papa John's, we believe, leaned on our ingredients and being very consistent and, and having a limited menu, and that allowed us to execute at a very high level. And because at Biscuit Belly, we have a chef-driven menu. We really have, and the, the food is good. And we always say that the camera eats first. So that's number one when I look at concept. Two, the unit economics. We pro-formatted at a certain level of sales. Our first couple of stores opened well above that. Food and, and labor costs are very attractive in this model. Although, in the last couple of years, food costs for everybody has been a little bit crazy. But, you know, it's coming back down. And then, you know, the third thing is it's something that you got some passion around. Investing in something is, is is different than actually owning it and running it. So you got to be want to be in the stores, like being in the stores, like meeting with the team. And this is this is a really fun concept. And I love the fact that it's uh, you know seven thirty to two during the week, seven thirty to three on weekends. And you know in the in the food world, your employees, your franchisees, you know your owners, you're always working every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. When all your friends are out and your kids are got the football game, your friends are going out. And in the biscuit belly world, all of our employees, all of our franchisees. We're out of the store by four o'clock on Friday and Saturday. Doesn't happen in any other business in the food world. And I think it just gives you a quality of life and allows you to attract both employees and franchisees that you probably couldn't get in other in other segments. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. I don't think many people probably take that for granted. Even myself, I gotta be honest. You know, just in talking about franchises and owning and operating them, I guess the sacrifice you have to make when you're in a hospitality business, you know, especially if you're coming in, you know, there's a lot of like multi-unit operators or people who want to be that multi-unit operator. You know, maybe that's something they haven't thought of is that, you know, at least, especially in the early days for, if you are operating and you buy a restaurant franchise, I mean, <laughs> things running all, you know, most of them, like you said, are running all weekends. And, and yeah, like you need someone to be in there to service customers. That's just the bottom line. So that's, makes it even more impressive, which, you know, we can get to the numbers in the FDD at a certain point, maybe. But, you know, I, I saw that the, the recent one came out. But the fact that I guess it's running far less than your average restaurant and still producing some pretty healthy revenue numbers is is fantastic. You did an interview on, I think it's called Acquiring Minds. And I think one of the statistics you threw out was 50% of franchisees have either multiple units or multiple brands. 
And I think Biscuit Belly is a perfect plug-in for somebody who's got another you know, another restaurant brand already. Yeah, and, you, and you're starting to see so many hot brands come up, you know, especially like, you know, right now it's fried chicken and pizza's always big, burgers and the big staples and other franchisees are starting to get kind of blocked from those newer concepts because of what they're already in. There may be some exclusive issues or territorial issues or whatever, or they've just maxed out their current brand in their territories. And with brunch being pretty darn hot right now, I think, I mean, the day part's attractive, unit economics are attractive. I mean, it's a fairly small footprint and we still have a fairly scratch made kitchen, but we've brought on some superpower, if you will, from a team standpoint to really help alleviate some of those issues with prep and and labor and all of that and really streamlining the kitchen so we can still have a very scratch made kitchen but also streamline the recipe and cross utilize better you know all that definitely i think it's a really thoughtful concept the way you guys have approached it but back to something uh i think it was chuck who mentioned earlier just chad you had in 2014 the idea for a biscuit concept can you kind of just talk more about that? Like, you know, what, what were you thinking? Like why biscuits? Obviously, right. You serve a ton of different things on your brunch menu, but you know, was there a certain inspiration for why you thought even the branding, right? It's called biscuit belly. What was the inspiration there? I guess being from Georgia would be the first thing. So go into any little country gas station, they'd have like a little grill, which are now like becoming more and more common with, with other franchise systems, you know, going into gas stations. But the little one in town of a population 400 where I grew up would have just a little griddle and they'd be serving really good biscuit sandwiches with just like bacon, egg and cheese, sausage, egg and cheese. And funny enough, the pharmacist I used to intern under at CBS, his brother owned a biscuit place right next door. It was called Biscuit Express. And it was almost like a subway model where you go down the line like, okay, I want scrambled eggs, not fried eggs. I want sausage patty, bacon. You kind of like built your own biscuit sandwich. And I being the intern had to go make all the food runs and coffee runs for the, uh, <laughs> for the uh, staff. <laughs> so that was my job. So I don't know that it just always kind of stuck with me and then getting into food business. And then you started to see the kind of the advent of, of the biscuit concept in Nashville, Asheville, Portland, Oregon. It's like, okay, well, you know, these guys are doing, you know, one and two locations. That's interesting. And that was like in 2013, 2014. But they were starting to elevate biscuits as a as a yeah. concept from your greasy, you know, back of the grocery store to something, you know, craveable that's photographable. And uh, we just took that to the next level. Yeah, but that's really it. We, we really saw an opportunity and we had pretty good biscuits at, at Luvino and some interesting kind of spins on biscuits and gravy. And so we kind of took those ideas and just really made a concept out of it. We wanted to be different because you look at a majority of the, both the kind of historical concepts like your Denny's and IHOP and Shoney's and all that. And then you look at the new concepts like First Watch and Snooze, Eggs Up Grill, et cetera. And then, you know, they're all very similar in their offerings. It's your kind of traditional waffles, pancakes, sausage, bacon, eggs. I mean, your traditional just breakfast fare. And so we felt like, we wanted to do something different and have it a little bit more signature based around another style of food, the biscuit that no one else was really doing at a, at a larger scale. We, we were just trying to be different, you know, than, than just your bacon, egg, your bacon pancakes, all that stuff that you can get kind of everywhere at any point in time. 
So I think we, we were looking for a differentiating factor as well. Would you guys kind of say uh, the IHOPs and Denny's of the world, do you view them as like your closest type of competitors? Because like obviously from an operating model, they're different, right? Like IHOP and Denny's are open 24-7, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, is that who you would say? I mean, because just from, I guess, for context, when I discovered you you guys, I was like, oh, like this is IHOP, but it looks way cooler. Like that was kind of my thought, <laughs> which obviously, you know, I know IHOP International House of Pancakes. It's not biscuit. It doesn't have that biscuit focus necessarily. But yeah, is that kind of who you view as where you're trying to maybe disrupt some of the incumbent players in the restaurant world? I definitely think they have. We're probably going after a very different customer, I guess. I would consider ourselves a cooler, trendier stepbrother or something, maybe. Yeah, uh, I think so. some of the local higher-end brunch places, there's a local steak restaurant that has a big brunch program. There's a local Mexican group that has one. I think the the, the higher-end people want an experience is probably our closer competitor than just going in to get as much as you can for as little as, for as much food, as little money as you can, which is, I think, a, an IHOP or a Waffle House kind of a model. And nobody walks away from Biscuit Belly hungry, but we're not the chief... <laughs> model of a brunch we're the tweener i'd say where ihop denny's all that you've got those which i feel like are the more value plays and then you've got kind of your first watch um and some others that are kind of probably the higher end of the segment at least from a regional national level and so i feel like we're right in the middle of the price point the quality is still i'd say up there with the best of them so and again we are a fast casual model but the only really fast casual part about it is the queue line and order at the counter. Everything else is pretty full service. We try to offer like coffee refills at the table. We run the food and drinks. We bust the tables. We have manager touching all the tables. We have essentially a full bar license. So we do have about eight or so cocktails on the menu, whether the, the your classic mimosa to kind of our Kentucky spin with a Kentucky coffee, which is just drip coffee and bourbon and whipped cream. <laughs> and, you know, we have a kind of a breakfast style fashion. So again, I, I don't think maybe your Denny's Waffle House customer is going to want that. And it's just now that you're seeing some <laughs> of these other larger chains that are adding alcohol to the menu. Now, I wouldn't say we're a, a super boozy brunch because of the dining style. Like we don't have servers. So it's usually just kind of a one and done, but Depending on the location, it's anywhere from like three to eight percent, give or take, of the product mix. Noted. All right. Well, next time we'll do a follow up podcast live at a biscuit belly, and we can. Uh, I want to try that Kentucky coffee or whatever you said. Gets one of those at the end. So, do you guys view? Because you mentioned it a few times making the food and the meals very photographable, and Chuck, you said you know the camera eats first, right? Is that like part of the strategy? Because like I am looking at the website, and I mean. At all, like I'm hungry as hell just looking at it. So is that, do you guys view that as like a necessity if you're operating a restaurant? You should really be, if you're making your meals and they're not necessarily something that's Instagrammable, right? Is that a missed opportunity in your guys' eyes? We actually now, with our new VP of training that we brought on, we actually have like an Instagram ready class when we're on for our expo in which we make sure that before that plate goes out that it's Instagrammable, so to speak. So we definitely include that in training and part of the operations. It's great publicity, right? I mean, you know, everybody's on social media these days when they're posting it, tell them I'm at Biscuit Belly, look at this great mimosa I've got, look at this great biscuit I've got. It's a pre-advertising opportunity that has real 
legitimacy because it's coming straight from your customer. As we all know, the, the biggest form of advertising is word of mouth. And so, and especially with social being so big, it's funny too, like actually one of my favorite photographs that I've seen, the guy, I guess, was so hungry and it looked so good that he, he forgot to take a picture of it. But it was, uh, I believe it was our, what we call the love shack, which is a open face biscuit with uh, baked brie, honey, pralines, berry jam. It's more of a lighter option in the grand scheme of, I guess it's all relative on our menu, but it's one of our lighter options. But he had kind of this layer of jam still left on the, a thin layer of jam left on the plate. And he wrote with his finger, wow, with an exclamation point and left it. (laughs) (laughs) So I took and posted a picture of it. So yeah, customers are creative. It's fun to, that validity is more than anything we could really pay for. I'm super impressed with how Harry's is helping hospitality owners. With Harry, you can hire, manage, engage, and retain your people on a powerful end-to-end platform. Join over 50,000 restaurants and hotels across the globe who use Harry to save labor costs and reduce risk through employee engagement. Created and run by passionate industry experts, Harry understands hospitality. Stop struggling to retain talent create great employee experiences. Visit harry.com today. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. Transitioning to like the franchising aspect. I mean, Chad, again, so like what I said in the beginning, right? We first spoke pretty early on in your franchising journey. And with your other concept, right? Lubino, that wasn't franchised, right? That was just, uh, you just expanded. So between then and now, right? What's it been like effectively, right? I know you guys don't use, at least you haven't for the most part, used like a franchise sales organization, which is where I was at. I almost feel like it's becoming more more common. I feel like because franchising is obviously like close to it, like a launching a second business. So yeah, I mean, what's just the process been like from going from running Biscuit Belly as a restaurant operator to now jumped into well, let's try to get other people to open a biscuit belly. Yeah, for us, it was really the speed and capital that was needed to expand. We felt like we had a franchisable model with the first two. When we're talking about like pre-COVID economics, obviously, which we didn't have a, a lot of that history, but we felt like with those first two, like, okay, we I feel like we have something here. So, so we launched it in October of 2020 which is an interesting time to launch a, a franchise restaurant concept. But yeah, and and we even saw like with Luvino, we opened a store in Fishers, Indiana. And that just being that hour and a half away was a struggle. And it was hard to maintain that good rapport with our employees. It was hard to keep a good pulse on the business. And so, you know, you can hire the greatest manager in the world or what you think is one. And they may not always turn out to have the best interest because they don't have ownership in the business. And so with franchising, obviously it allows groups to that have ownership to be the boots on the ground for that location or group of locations. So that was kind of our process. It was a speed thing. It was a capital thing because there were other groups that were, you know, we'll just go and name it, right? Like Maple Street, bought by Cracker Barrel. They have a little bit more money than us. They can run faster. And so we feel like our product is superior, service is superior, um, our reviews are far greater than theirs, especially on new store openings. So we felt like, okay, well, if we're going to 
I wouldn't say like catch up, but if we want to stay in the race, so to speak, on the marathon that this is, then we probably need to run a little faster. And again, we felt franchising was the way to do that. So anyway, and just to kind of give the journey, we started in October of 2020. In 2021, we brought on three groups, one that has Lexington, Kentucky, and Knoxville. And so that was a six-unit deal. We did a four-unit deal in Alabama between Birmingham and Huntsville. And we did a five-unit deal for kind of the bits and pieces of Atlanta. So uh, we really did that. That was almost all referral-based of just people we knew that did introductions. We did spend a little bit of marketing money, maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 or so in 2021. It was a bunch of tire kickers. Uh, never led to anything remotely substantial. Some funny stories, <laughs> honestly, that we'll share in another time with a couple screaming oh, in the, the bathroom. coffee, yeah. Yeah, a couple screaming in the bathroom <laughs> of a restaurant. They, got in the fire. they drank too much and then wanted to... Uh, get some dip on the way back to the hotel. So anyway, just some funny stories, uh, but, but a lot of tire kickers. Oh, and then we, we basically like put marketing on hold. We're like, all right, we've got, it's called 15, 20 units that are in the pipeline. We need to make sure that these open well, because if these don't open well, like we're toast, right? We have zero validation. So we want to make sure we, we put all the marketing on hold. We invested that money instead of, instead of marketing, we invested in people. We brought on a couple of, of experienced restaurant executives that have worked with startups before. So that's super important to get that startup person versus, you know, person that's worked at Cracker Barrel for 20 years. And so we did that. We opened a few units. I feel like the validation is there and they are bringing us a lot of good ideas as far as menu innovation, branding, marketing. And, and that's why, Again, we're looking for multi-unit operators. We're not looking to teach anyone the restaurant business right now. We don't. We don't really have the time to do that. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's going to do us justice in the long run. Maybe in the future we can entertain that. And then, so that was 2021, 2022. We had some people here that saw the growth, wanted to invest in the parent company. We said no. And so myself, Chuck, and some of our mutual friends, my friends, his friends, we raised some money here locally. Got a decent line of credit. We decided to do a joint venture market in Chesapeake, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, and Raleigh, North Carolina. And so actually Chesapeake opens friends and family is Friday. <laughs> so a uh, couple days. So that the first unit there opens, the other two will open later here. And that was the only thing we did in 2022. 2023, this year, our Alabama group actually signed up for a six unit deal in Charlotte. So they uh, are actually signing one lease today and are going to probably be signing another lease in the next few weeks uh, for Charlotte, North Carolina. And we're starting to get more inquiries, just random. We're having a, someone from Greenville, South Carolina come in soon. We're having a talk in Michigan. So we're trying to stay like in the general Midwest, Southeast area. We're not looking to go to like Seattle or, uh, you know, New York City or anything like that. Zero interest in that right now. So yeah, that's the strategy. Again, we're looking, okay, well, how do we take it to the next level? I mean, we are looking at some FSOs, obviously, and you and I have talked about that. We're looking at potentially bringing in an equity partner. Again, we don't, we're not interested in just money. Like we want people that have done this before and can make sure we stay on track and don't make the basic mistakes. Yeah. So that's really where we are now. We started the year with six total units, four corporate, two franchise. We'll end the year with 12 or 13, still more heavily weighed on the corporate JV side. And um, 
again, we're feel like we're we've got the team and and the concept is a little bit more refined and really want to put the pedal to the metal. And we think I believe it's it's important for us to operate stores ourselves. They give you a lot of credibility with franchisees. The fact we've got four that we own, and we're going to actually manage the JV stores. And as Chad said, we have put a a lot of money into people and systems, which I think is what you have to do as a franchisor. It's expensive up front. You got to spend the money and give the franchisees the uh, the support they need. Yeah, and then I'd say with I'd put our systems, people, and process against any other group that has eight units. <laughs> you know, and that's really why we've been able to attract the people that we have thus far is because they come, they're like, oh, wow. Okay. You guys, we really like your team. (laughs) We really like what we see. The food's obviously great. And again, I don't think that they would have taken that chance if it would have been a train wreck when they came to Louisville to (laughs) see our operation. It's good to hear kind of how thoughtful you guys have been about the growth and and even the fact that you said, let's put future franchise marketing on hold for now and and make sure we invest in our current franchisees and make them successful. I think that's a telling sign that your priorities are in the right place. And, you know, it's it's funny, like something you said pretty early on to that response about just why you even wanted to franchise, which was that you noticed from your last endeavor that the people who worked at these locations didn't necessarily have skin in the game. And it's funny, I actually, surprisingly, I hear the opposite a lot, which is that folks are afraid of franchising because they're like, no, I want to maintain control as I expand. And it's always confusing to me because of exactly what you said is what I agree with, where franchising is, if you do it right, I mean, you're giving people skin in the game. And so why would a restaurant manager who's a W2 care more about a franchisee? I mean, there are like, you know, In-N-Out Burger has managed to do it well. And they, I know they pay their managers very high amounts, but for the most part, right? It's pretty tough to do. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of call that out. But I mean, it, right in our back backyard, right? We have Texas Roadhouse who has been the segment leader in kind of that casual dining. It's really the entire casual dining, but more specifically, you know, the steak side of things. And, and they have the whole buy-in almost owner-operator model with yeah, their so GMs. The kind of yeah, like the Chick-fil-A is the Texas Roadhouse. I mean... <laughs> It's like there's there's a common theme there, right? And yeah, you do have to watch your people. Yeah, franchisees are they're gonna go out and like try to get a cheaper product potentially or whatever. But I mean, as long as you have the people to you're visiting them and they have that accountability and trust, you know, that goes both ways. I mean, I think they listen to you. So it's more of a, a healthy relationship than like a boss and a or you know, like our parent and child kind of relationship. You said you opened, you know, your store in October 2020, and especially given being more of a brunch sit-down concept, I mean, that that of course <laughs> wasn't the ideal circumstances for you to to open under some of those newer locations. So, you know, was there anything that actually, if you could take away positive, right, that maybe that did it force you to really hone in on your delivery operations or anything like that, or how yeah. did you guys? kind of game plan it where it's like, okay, this isn't what we want the biscuit belly model to be, but we have to adapt because the world's telling us we have to adapt. What was the war room like at Biscuit Belly during that time? Yeah, it was it was oh, well put, yeah. World yeah, kind of war room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, situation room. I think our I think our governor was the second one after Ohio to shut things down. So we got hit pretty early on. We had to shut down on three different occasions. Um it was the big one and then I think two subsequent ones for a couple of weeks. So it was just like this yo yo of craziness. But uh, yeah, we basically went from 0% takeout to 100% uh, 
obviously. And then now we've, we still maintain about 30%, which is quite shocking. Yeah. I think everybody that had been in the food business had to figure out how to get it out the door in a bag or a box and, and do it as best you could. And, and I think, I think we did a good job. I think yeah. the fact that we're holding the 30% says we, we've done some things that, that people continue to enjoy biscuit belly at home. It's interesting, like the ripple effect and that residual impact, because right, there could have been customers during that time who their first experience of biscuit belly wasn't in the store. It was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take out food today. And it happened to be you. And maybe they're in a habit of that now. It's just, it's kind of funny the way things can go. I want to ask Chuck, like long-term, right, given what you were able to do and, and be a part of with Papa John's, in franchise systems, is there almost a tipping point where, because I got to imagine Papa John's, right? Public company, massive brand. Everyone knows it. You got Shaq, one of the faces in a way. Is there a point where, you know, like Chad's obviously on the earlier side of things with Biscuit Belly, but is there a point where you almost become and I don't know how to put this, I guess like an order taker, right? Where like in the beginning, you're kind of trying to prove as a brand, you're trying to prove out the concept like locally, regionally, nationally. But at what point do you think, like, is there a framework that you can give us almost where it's like, once you hit this point, it's just all of a sudden people are now asking you, can I open this concept versus you're not necessarily selling them? We said the exact scenario of Papa John's and what I found about people in the, in the restaurant people, uh, we had pop franchisees at Papa John's that had been in, say, a Long John Silver's or a Jerry's, sold it. Then they got into maybe a Wendy's, built that up and sold it. And, you know, they're 45, 50 years old and they're playing golf every day. And food people can't stand it. They want to get back in. The restaurant people are restaurant people. And I cannot tell you, once we hit about 150 stores at Papa John's, the phone started ringing and it was like, hey, my buddy is your franchisee in, in South Carolina, says he's crushing it with Papa John's. I sold, you know, 25 Wendy's two years ago and I'm bored to death. Can I come talk to you guys? And, you know, the food world in restaurants is a very well-connected, as you, as we talked about earlier, everybody out there, they've been in these, in the food business forever. There's connections. They've been in multiple brands. And uh, once the, that flywheel gets going and people are having success with a brand, and I think especially one like Biscabelli, where the, as I mentioned earlier, the unit economics, the footprint size, the investments, uh, the, the hours, I really think we'll at some point soon we will hit that inflection point where where the phones start ringing. We think our franchisee in Alabama, they're in several different franchise groups. We think they could be a great source of, of referrals. In fact, they referred our, our franchise in Atlanta, <laughs> and then uh, this you know, a subgroup of that is doing the, the Charlotte market. So, it's as we said earlier, once you get you know the economics of the store that are very attractive, and you start having success in multiple markets, and you've proven out the concept, the phone will start ringing. We're still, you know, if they get ready to be nine units, we're still very tiny and, and everybody wants to see, you know, a little bit more proof of concept. But um, I don't think that day for us is very far out. It's funny, too, how these franchise systems can grow quick because it's exactly what you said, that that word of mouth referral basis. And it's almost the beauty of the model, right? Where just the bigger you get, the higher your chances get that one of your franchisees will refer someone or someone will walk in, be on a business trip and see your store and be like, I want to open that in my market. And yeah, it's this almost like just natural marketing engine that compounds and compounds with every new store being open. And every store is a billboard effectively for your entire brand. It's funny to watch it happen uh, over time. It is. It's, it's pretty exciting when it does. Now, I don't think Biscuit Bell ever grows at the rate that Papa John's. You know, Papa John's, we, you know, you could have a lot more density in a market with, with pizza and, sure. uh, you know, being a public company, you're doing 200 to 400 stores a year some years, which is absolutely crazy. 
But as it was, we talked earlier, having the right people and the right systems in place. When you know, when restaurant people come in, I think anybody's been in franchising, they know what you should have in place. And when they see it early on, it gives you a lot of credibility and gives them a lot of comfort to make that investment. I would imagine you need some pretty damn good systems to be opening 400 stores a year. That's impressive. Yeah, we had it down. That uh, yeah. well-oiled machine, and we had a lot of fun. And that's why I get to do whatever I want to do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, just in wrapping up here, I mean, Chuck, you just mentioned, right? Papa John's obviously maybe has a higher a ceiling on the number of units they could have versus a biscuit belly. It's just the nature of pizza versus a concept like biscuit belly. But Chad, what are your thoughts on just what are your goals with the company? Do you have like a North Star metric of like how many units you think you want to open or markets that you want to be in? You know, what are the next few years here kind of look like at Biscuit Belly? Yeah, it just naturally, I think because of the biscuit itself, the Southeast is where we probably are going to gravitate towards whether we want to or not. I think it's just people are most interested and I think the concept will do well down and continue to grow in the Southeast. And I'd say the biggest unpenetrated market for us would be Florida, just with all the large cities there, and especially Orlando being such a tourist hub. I think that would be great from a brand recognition standpoint and really from a franchise development standpoint. People come in there with their family that may be a multi-unit operator and they really like it. They want to open one there. Yeah, I think, again, even if nothing else happens, we'll have 15 to 16 units by and probably in the next 12 months total. And again, we I feel like we're ready to put the pedal to the metal and we're still tweaking the concept, uh, which I think we have to, to stay relevant and increase the uh, frequency of visits and the, the expand people. the customer base. Yeah. yeah, expanding the customer base. We've done that here. We're, we're going to roll some things out that we're really excited about it that uh, we think will help grab more people in more often. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, the next five to seven years, I mean, I think we should be looking at 50 units open and another hopefully 50 in the pipeline. So, um, and that's probably a little bit more organic growth. I mean, if we really, if we raise some money and get a strong uh, FSO and, and actually market that we're franchising, I mean, that that's the thing. All of this has pretty much been organic thus far. And so what does it look like if we really go out there and, and sell it. So I think that's really the the big delta that is unknown at this point. And my experience has been if we focus on the numbers in the box, the numbers in the restaurant, the number of restaurants will take care of themselves. And that's really what we're focused on right now is making sure that, you know, that it'll take growth will take care of itself from there. Sounds like exciting times ahead for uh, the Biscuit Belly brand. So I'll be excited to uh, watch it unfold. Chad and Chuck, this has been a fun conversation. Is there anywhere online where people who want to follow other you guys individually or the Biscuit Belly brand, you know, is there a good spot where they can do that? Well, Chuck has no social media. So I, I do have, <laughs> I have no social media accounts whatsoever. Smart man. Smart yeah. man. I uh, really, the yeah. only thing I do now is LinkedIn. So just my name, which I assume will be somewhere on the description here, Chad Coulter. And then, yeah, our website, biscuitbelly.com is our consumer facing website biscuit belly franchise is the franchising website um, and for all those delicious instagramable food photos you can follow us at biscuit belly biscuits plural on instagram uh, and then every location has their own page and yeah like just to kind of run down the locations we have three in louisville one in lexington kentucky one in evansville indiana ackworth which is suburbs of atlanta huntsville alabama and hoover alabama 
are the ones open now. And then Chesapeake, Virginia. Next week. Opening next week. So that's where we're at. Beautiful. Appreciate you coming on. We'll plug those links in the show notes, folks, so you can follow along. I definitely recommend the Instagram page uh, if you're hungry. It's pretty awesome. But yeah, Chad and Chuck, thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Thank you.